I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation, and the power, and the kingdom of our God, and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. Something unbelievably powerful about the reading of God's Word. Even we may not fully understand it, that's what this whole series has been about. We've been walking through one of the most controversial books in all of Scripture. And we're going to continue to do that through the last part of July and the first part of August. And this week we're actually going to do a sweeping coverage of seven chapters of the book of Revelation. So you can pray that my voice holds out as we get through that. But I'll introduce it by saying this. I used to hate flip-flops. Like with a passion, used to hate them, had, just had a hate relationship with them, but I changed my mind. Now I actually like them. I used to love mullets, okay? But thank you, Jesus, I changed my mind. I no longer sport that particular hairstyle. I used to think that the Gremlin was one of the most amazing cars ever made in North America. I changed my mind. This whole series has not been about trying to convince you to be in one particular theological camp. I'm not trying to ask you to agree with me. I'm not trying to ask you to, to switch sides or, or to pick a, per, a, a particular theological camp. What this series has been about is about coming back to God over and over again and believing that our God is in control yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? I mean, that's the work that we're just going through right now. I don't know about you, but I only want to identify one way. 
I'm a follower of Jesus. Now, with that comes some specific issues that go along with being a follower of Jesus. So as a pastor of Christ the King, because I'm a follower of Jesus, there are certain issues that I hold with a closed hand. The deity of Jesus, the, the infallibility and, and the inerrancy of Scripture, and the mystery of the Trinity, the sanctity of relationships as God designed them to be. I hold those with a closed hand, and I would love to think that I would give my life for those particular issues. As we've been walking through Revelation, we've been talking about some of these other more interpretive issues, and I've just encouraged you week after week after week to hold them with an open hand. Just to say, you know, these are matters of conviction. This is a matter of opinion, because you can see this stuff very, in, in a lot of different ways. The, the reality is this. I spent a lot of my life very, very legalistic. And I can tell you, there were times when I was not just holding this sign, but I was more defined by my eschatology, my understanding of end times, or my particular uh, convictions with regards to modes of baptism and all this other kind of stuff that honestly is so unbelievably inconsequential. And here's what I learned. Whenever I replaced this with anything else, it was wrong. It was wrong. We can never allow opinions on open-handed issues to, to split and divide the church of Jesus. We just can't allow it to happen. So I know some of you have been, you know, some of you have been pushing me, especially by email, going, Grant, when are you gonna, like, when are you gonna step up and actually tell us your opinion? Like, where do you stand? Are you, are you a pre-tribber? Are you a pre-miller? Like, how does that stuff go? So I just want to make it absolutely clear. My eschatological view is represented on this sign. Can you see it down over here? I'm making a point, 1115, do you understand? Here it is. You see this tiny little thing? You can't even read it, can you? That's on purpose because it's not nearly that important. It's actually labeled eschatology. But in light of everything that God has asked us to do, this is the kind of perspective that we are desperately trying to attach ourselves to. I would love for all of us to be the kind of people that would be defined more by this than defined by how we would define ourselves and our understanding of the end times. Can I get an amen from somebody, 1115? I mean, we've been walking with this for several different weeks, and so you know, I think it's about time that we actually did show up with regards to a chart. So, you know, everybody has a chart when you do an end time series, so this is the only chart you're going to get. So grab your outline, turn it sideways, and you'll notice how it's labeled. This is the view of eschatology, the study of the end times, that I grew up with. Okay, I am not asking you to agree with this. I'm not asking you to not have, have an independent and, and intelligent conversation about this, this wide sweeping section of the future as it's coming and dictated out by scripture. I'm asking you to take some time. You'll notice I put a scripture underneath of every single one of these end time uh, specific events so that you could go and take your Bible and figure out whether or not I'm lying to you or not. So we're going to walk through the chart together. Just so that you kind of know where I'm coming from. And ultimately we're going to end up in a place where I hopefully we can all agree. So if you take a look at the chart, you understand. We started the world in a season or, or a time space known as the law. The Old Testament law was in charge and animal sacrifice was the way that God's wrath was appeared when it came to people. But then Jesus showed up and ushered in an age of unbelievable grace. He died on a cross, rose again three days later to defeat, or to defeat life and death once and for all. And then Jesus left the earth. The Bible says he actually ascended back into heaven, but we weren't left alone. He sent the Holy Spirit here in a time called Pentecost, where he's empowering believers, and the Holy Spirit continues to lead us during this time. He ushered in what is known as the church age. 
And we're living in the church age right now. And then there are people who will disagree with this next arrow, and that's okay. Like I said, I'm telling you how I grew up. That there is a biblical understanding of a time when God will rapture or take away his church from the earth. They're going to just disappear. They're going to be gone. And it enters into a, a, a seven-year period known as the tribulation. Starts off really good, and then it goes really, really, really bad. During the time of the seven-year tribulation, Christians are participating in something called the Bema seat, or the Bema judgment, which is actually a reward seat before God. That's when the Antichrist is actually ruling and reigning down here on earth, and it starts off good, then it gets bad. We'll talk about more about that in, in, uh, in just a couple of moments. But it's this season in Scripture known as the tribulation. At the end of the tribulation... If you hold to this more conservative view, Jesus comes back. It's the second coming. He actually comes back. He binds Satan. There's a massive battle we'll talk about in the next coming weeks called Armageddon. And it ushers in a thousand year period where God puts everything back the way that it's supposed to be. Nations are judged. Israel is restored. The Jews come to Christ and unbelievably, uh, unbelievable. God reclaims his people because he calls them his chosen people. The creation is all put back the way that it was supposed to be. We no longer live in a broken place, but for a thousand years, Jesus reigns here. And if you follow this view as a Christian, you'll be here reigning with him during that time. Then at the end of the thousand years, God looses Satan Let's him come back again. There's another massive battle. We'll talk about that, the battle of Gog and Magog, which ultimately, you know, comes together in this thing known as the great white throne judgment. And some of you look at that and go, wow. Like I said, I'm not trying to convince you of a particular position. In fact, what I would love for more than anything than, than just having you come and grab a hold of, uh, of a particular position is that you'd actually go home and open up your Bible and say, is Grant telling me the truth or not? You know, honestly, over the years, I've been kind of almost disgusted with myself at times as to how I, I, I've taken these little incidental issues and made them bigger than the fact that I simply wanted to be a follower of Jesus. So if you want to know what my position is, I put it in your outline, once and for all. You can fill in the blank. I'm a follower of Jesus. And then underneath of it, I actually put it in legal font. So you're going to need a magnifier to be able to read it. I'm sending a message with that as well. And if you get all legalistic on me, I'm not going to go that direction. I put it in legal font. So I'm a follower of Jesus who just happens to hold an open-handed, pre-tribulational, pre-millennial view of Scripture. Okay, I said it out loud, and, and the earth didn't shake, and lightning didn't hit anybody. Everybody, you're, all, you're all okay? Yeah. Hey, just take a big, deep breath, all right? I mean, honestly, when I think of everything else that God has asked his followers to do, there's so much more important stuff, but this is where we happen to be in Scripture. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O men and women of God, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly, to love mercy... And to walk humbly with your God. I read that verse and I don't see anything about creating a chronological chart. Do you? He's told us what it is that we're supposed to be doing. So I think we need to keep our chronology in perspective. Here's my, this is how I've encountered this particular issue when it comes to the end times. People are obsessed with the chronology. They want to know what comes in what order. And there's a problem with that. The problem is this, the apocalyptic visions of Revelation, they are cyclical and not always chronological. 
So if you spend all your time trying to create a chronology, you're actually missing out on some of the biggest and most important parts of the book of Revelation. We're going to cover seven chapters today. Over the next chapters, God's going to step into his role as judge. I want to remind you of something I'll say multiple times. Judgment comes against only those who willfully reject God. That's who the judgment is coming against. For those who passionately follow Jesus, this may be hard to hear, but it shouldn't create fear. In fact, I believe if you read the book of Revelation and you get all freaked out in fear, I actually believe you're sinning. Because the Bible says, perfect love casts out all fear. Well, if Jesus is perfect love and he's the one that's in charge of all of the end times, why in the world would it scare the daylights out of us when ultimately what happens is he comes back and we win? I mean, it should be an encouragement to all of us. Revelation chapter 7 through 14, we see 21 physical judgments across creation and personal judgments for idolatry and immorality. And embedded in these cycles is a cast of characters that we should know. All right? Let me introduce you to the who's who of Revelation 7 through 14. If you open uh, chapter 7, first of all, you're going to meet the 144,000. Okay? According to the Bible, these are Jewish evangelists who actually spread the name of Jesus during the tribulation, during a very, very difficult time. So during this seven-year period, known as the tribulation, God sends preachers to tell of his, of his kingdom because it appears you can live in the tribulation and still come to Christ. Okay? Let me say this as sensitively and loving as I can. The 144,000 are not a part of an American group that claims ownership of this number and comes to your doorstep early on Saturday mornings trying to give you free magazines. Okay, I'm not trying to be disrespectful, I'm trying to tell you the truth. This is a group of Jewish believers who are willing to give it all for Christ during a time under intense pressure when they will not waver, compromise, or back down when it comes to proclaiming the truth. And in a basic reading of their identity, there's an application for us. Here's the question, will I boldly share the message of Jesus? Right now, forget about the future. Will I boldly share the message of Jesus or am I going to be one of those people that sits quietly by, hope that Grant gets it right on the weekend and that God will answer my prayer and send somebody else to tell my neighbor about his son? I mean, all through this, you see boldness and tact and joy and conviction and passion and humility and servanthood. All of these are markers of those who care enough to lovingly speak the truth of Jesus, no matter the cost. Right after the introduction of the 144,000 are another group known as the Great Multitude, also in chapter 7. These are those who were martyred for their faith during the tribulation. So John, the guy who's writing down all of these visions, he actually asks the question, who is this big crowd standing in heaven? And this is the answer he gets. These are those who've come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So apparently, one can still come to faith in Christ during the tribulation. Here's the catch. It'll cost you your life. Literally. You'll be martyred for your faith. According to Revelation, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people are willing to pay that price. I want to remind you of something. That kind of martyrdom is happening right now. Do we get that? Around the world, we have brothers and sisters who are being executed for doing what we're doing this morning. This past week, somebody asked a question. They were just like, hey, Grant, you know, I just got a question for you. D do you know what year the most Christians were murdered for their faith? And I think my answer shocked them. I said, actually, I've done some research on that. It's last year. 
More Christians were murdered last year than any other year in human history because they dared to do what we're doing right now. We need to be mindful of that. We need to pray for our family around the globe who doesn't get to come to a building with padded seats and, and coffee cup holders. We need to be mindful of them. We don't need to feel guilty, but we need to be mindful of them and pray for them. What's the application? What price would I be willing to pay to follow Jesus? I mean, if I was given the choice to recant my faith in Jesus or live, would I be willing to pay that price? What would my answer be? And before you just go, oh, absolutely, you may want to just think about that deeply. In the middle of the chapters of Revelation, we actually see some actual events that become almost like characters. They're the judgments. We'll talk about them more next week. We have seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls and seven plagues. These are physical and personal judgments, and they're scary to read. I mean, you just, just read through them, war, famine, starvation, plague, conflict, idolatry, perversion. I mean, it's scary stuff. But once again, I want to remind you, the judgments come against those who willfully reject God. So if you don't want to face the judgments, don't reject God. Does that make sense? Instead, meet God in his grace. I mean, that's the application, right? I can face Jesus in his judgment. Everyone will. The Bible says one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And we're either going to do that willingly or God is going to bring us into alignment. I can face Jesus in his judgment or I can face him in his grace. I remember when I came to Christ, after the years of rebellion and just doing my own thing, and I didn't walk into the throne room of God, I crawled covered in sin scars, coming before him and just saying, God, I so deserve to be judged. I so deserve to be judged. But you said that there was amazing grace even for somebody broken like me. My prayer is if you don't want to face God in his judgment, don't. Face him in his grace. Let's keep going. Revelation chapter 11, we meet two witnesses. Now their actual identities aren't given, okay? A lot of people believe the first witness is Elijah. That he's actually reinserted back into human history. Let me tell you where that comes from. In the Old Testament book of Malachi, he's a prophet. He says these words, that God would send Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So some people go, one of the witnesses must be Elijah. Other people think it's Moses. Some people think it's Enoch, a guy that never even tasted death. Because he and God were on, had such an amazing relationship one day, they just went for a walk and kept right on going to heaven. I mean, you don't believe me? Read your Bible. It's an amazing story. People just don't know exactly who these are. But this important element of the two witnesses carries with it the same lesson we learned about the identity of the living creatures and the elders. It's not as important to know who they are as to pay attention to what they're doing and what they're saying. You see, the witnesses speak truth in the middle of the tribulation. They uncover Satan's lies. They uncover the lies of the Antichrist and it leads us to an application. Okay? This goes for everybody. Speaking the truth can bring conviction. Sometimes it can also bring backlash. I've gotten some interesting emails during this series. Sometimes it brings backlash, but ultimately, if you're faithful, it brings an eternal reward. Jesus says it's worth it. So these two witnesses, they speak truth. And then the Bible tells us they're actually murdered and they lay in the street for days with everyone around the world watching them. Now, years ago, people would go, how in the world is that ever going to happen? Today, that wouldn't be so hard, would it? 
I mean, I, I, I can tap into a street cam in Jerusalem this morning and watch what's going on. And the Bible says they're actually murdered for speaking the truth. And once again, it appears that evil has won, but one more time. After three days, the Bible says these witnesses are brought back to life by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. The same power that breathed life into every single person that was baptized this morning. And they stand back up and they start breathing again. Some are like, that's not possible. It's a miracle. That's the whole deal with miracles, right? The first prerequisite to a miracle is an impossible situation. When you got two dead guys laying in the street and you say, I think they're coming back to life again, that's impossible unless God steps in, right? So they actually come back to life again and they begin to testify again. So the question is this, would we all be willing to speak the truth knowing that it can bring conviction but can also bring a worldly backlash but ultimately an eternal reward? Let's keep moving. Chapter 12, we meet two new characters, the woman and the dragon, all right? There's a blank in the first part, the, Satan, or the second one says Satan, so I gave that part away. And let me fill in the blank in a moment, the first one. John says this, he's writing this stuff down in Revelation, and he goes, A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, and a woman clothed with the sun, and with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars was on her head. She was pregnant, and she gave birth to a baby. A dragon tries to kill the baby. Interesting note about the dragon. It says that his tail swept away a third of the stars as he was chasing and pursuing the baby. Now, if you're a biblical person and you actually read your Bible, it's like, oh, ding, 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 ding. The Bible tells the story that when Lucifer fell from heaven in his pride, that he swept away a third of the angelic host with him, and they joined him in his rebellion. So you read that and you go, I know who the dragon is. The dragon is Satan himself, and it unleashes the spiritual conflict as the baby grows into the Lamb of God. Now, some of you are sitting here going, okay, this is interesting. Does anybody else know a story in the Bible where out of a nation that has 12 tribes, a baby emerges in a little town called Bethlehem? And the satanic forces of the world, through a guy by the name of Herod, tries to wipe out the child because he knows that that kid is actually the real king of Israel. Does that ring a bell to anybody? And have yourself a merry little Christmas now. I mean, really? It's a conflict that's been going on for 2,000 years. And it's still going on. You don't believe me? Open a newspaper. Conflict, right? What's the application? The battle between good and evil is summed up in two words. Merry Christmas. There it is, right? That's not so intimidating when you actually start reading it, right? The battle begins to rage and two more players are introduced. In chapter 13, we meet the beast of the sea. Some of you have been waiting for this moment. It's like, oh, finally we got him. The Antichrist has finally showed up in the story, right? He's a false political and economic savior. And the Bible teaches that during this seven-year period of tribulation, that this powerful political and economic leader, he emerges. And he's heralded as a small s savior because he actually does something that no one else has ever been able to do. He actually brings peace to the Middle East. Pretty big deal. The tribulation actually starts off fairly good. And it's all attributed to this one guy. I put all of the, the relevant scriptures about the identity of the Antichrist in your outline so you can actually go and study it, okay? 
But it says that he is an intellectual, oratorical, political, commercial, military, and religious genius. According to scripture, you will more likely be able to find the Antichrist on the cover of Time magazine than lurking in the shadows, coming up with some kind of a conspiracy. The Bible says that he's actually going to be out in the open, and he's going to have an amazing ability to convince people that his agenda is pure, but it's not. I want to remind you of his name according to the Bible. He's the anti-Christ. He's the exact opposite of Jesus in every single way, which begs for an application. Let me ask you a question. Can you spot an imposter? Can you spot an imposter? I mean, what's the best way to be able to identify a fake? I'll tell you what, how it works. The best way to identify a fake is to spend so much time with the genuine article that you're so immersed in the genuine article that anything else that comes along and claims to be the genuine article, you can look at it and go, that is not real. That's not true. And let's face it, we have false saviors everywhere, right? We believe in the false savior of our bank account. We believe in the false savior of our 401k until the economy crashes and then we're all just like, I guess there's no security in Wall Street. We think our security is in a 60-inch big screen until the cable goes out and then it's like, ah, my whole life, right? We think all of these things are going to fill the hole in our soul and God just keeps begging us, come after the genuine article. Nothing else will fill the hole in your soul for eternity. So let me ask or answer some questions. Who is the Antichrist? I don't know. And neither do you. I grew up in a season, and I grew up in a little Baptist church. I remember hearing this, right? The Antichrist was Mikhail Gorbachev because the guy had a birthmark on his head. And somebody found sixes in that birthmark somehow. What? Deeply disappointed when suddenly he's gone, right? The truth is I don't know. Is he alive right now? I don't know, and neither do you. According to Scripture, there's another satanic imposter that joins the Antichrist. Revelation calls him the beast of the earth in chapter 13. He's the false prophet, and he's a false religious savior. The false prophet, he doesn't speak truth, doesn't worship the God of the Bible. He preaches a message of idolatry, self-fulfillment, and pride. And he's the one that shows up in the story and tells people, you're going to have to number or mark yourself with the Antichrist in me, and the way that's going to happen is you're going to have to take a number on your body, and the number is, oh, don't pretend like you don't know what the number is. Like, I don't want to say it out loud, right? I don't want to say it out loud, because I was driving here, and somebody drove by, and their license plate was like ACT666, and I'm like, ah, oh, the Antichrist is driving a Honda. What in the world is going on, right? And you're just like, yeah, well, and across the street, the house across the street, the number, you know, their address is 6636, close enough, right? And that, and that guy's crazy, so I know I'm watching, right? I'm watching. Can I ask you a simple question, those of you who would dare to call yourselves followers of Jesus? Whose mark do you bear right now? And I have to ask myself the question, can people see the love of God in me? Am I marked? Am I, am I, am I marked with his love and compassion and mercy and hope and joy? Or do I just bear the marks of the world? I have sin marks, believe me. Most of them I've done to myself. 
What's amazing about being the follower of Jesus is I'm not defined by the marks of sin on my soul. In fact, I have a new name for them. I call them the trophies of God's grace. And every day he takes those marks and those wounds and those scars and he's slowly but surely transforming them and redeeming them into something beautiful. He takes my broken story and every week gives me an opportunity to share with somebody in the room who may be walking the same broken road that I, rode, that I walked. That's what happens when God redeems the brokenness of our lives. So who is this Jesus who marks his followers with his love? I mean, seriously, who cares about that other number? Who cares about it? It's inconsequential. So who is this Jesus? Well, at the beginning of chapter 14, he shows up. I love that. Every time you think the book is like going to be like, ah, this is killing me, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, shows up and takes center stage. He shows up. Jesus Christ, a true and worthy Savior. What is he teaching us by showing up over and over again? It's such a simple principle. Don't waste your life chasing imposters. Don't be consumed with the identity of fakes. Instead, worship the Lamb. Bear his mark with pride and humility. I mean, if you know the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, to the greatest degree that I can, let me tell you who you are. So if you are a human being like me, broken in your spirit, who came to the cross and said, God, please save me. I know I don't deserve it. And the Bible actually has a name for you whether you like it or not. It calls you a saint. I don't often live up to that name, but that's how Jesus sees me. Because his beautiful righteousness, his right living is wrapped around me. Which means whether you like it or not, or whether you want to deny it or not, if you are a follower of God, you're a dearly loved, blood-bought, evil-conquering, truth-telling, forgiveness-bearing, hope-bringing, Jesus-bragging, Bible-thumping, love-spreading child of the Most High God. Live that way. And your mission is simple. Know him and make him known. What's the application when I know the Christ, I have no need to fear an antichrist. The end of chapter 14, guess who we run into again? 144,000 that show up. The Bible says this, then I looked and there before me was the lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him the 144,000, listen to this, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. I love these words, and they follow the lamb wherever he goes, and they were purchased from among mankind, offered as first fruits to God and the lamb, and no lie was found in their mouths because they are blameless. What's the application? It's another question. Will I live pure and follow the lamb wherever he goes? That's a great definition of a Christian. I live pure and I follow the lamb wherever he goes. That's a good job description. We should write that down. Who are you, Grant? I do my best to live pure and follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Here's a question for you. What if he leads you next door to talk to your obnoxious neighbor about Jesus, the guy with the weird address? What if he leads you to crawl underneath of a bridge with a bag of food to remind somebody who's, whom society has forgotten that the God of the universe has not forgotten and you haven't forgotten them either? What if he leads you to a place where your broken wound of a story can be redeemed and healed and used to bless somebody else who's walking through the same pain that you once walked through. Oh, we say it so easily. I'll follow the lamb wherever he goes. Will we? Are we? 
know, it's so easy. You read Revelation 7 through 14. I mean, I've, I've been reading it for a couple weeks, right, getting ready for this. And you read it and you get all caught up in, in the characters and the judgments and the names and all of these different pieces. And sometimes you get so wrapped up in the detail, you miss the point that's just screaming at you. So I'm talking with Pastor Brian Steele. We're, we're having a conversation about a class he's teaching, completely unrelated to Revelation. We're going through this kingdom stuff, this curriculum together, sitting in my office. And all of a sudden, he says the words, Revelation 11:15, And like I said, I've been reading 7 through 14 for several weeks. And he's like, I'm like... 11.15, what's that? And he quotes it to me. Right in the middle of all of this drama and imagery that's so unbelievably confusing are these words. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ. Let me read it again. He's giving away the end of the story. And if, and if you carry that kind of sign, this is unbelievably good news. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ, and he will reign. Only kings get to reign. Only royalty gets to reign. And if you're with the king... I don't want to give away the end of the story, but this turns out really, really well for you. You should be excited. You should walk out going, I like the book of Revelation. This is good for me. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ, and he will reign forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And it's only 1209, so I got a lot of time. And ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And ever, 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 I'm a Canadian, I'm stubborn, and ever, 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 and all God's people said, want to be known by your sign or a chart. Did not do this in the other services. I'll throw it in. Because <laughs> you guys don't have anywhere better to go, right? <laughs> I'm walking downtown this past week in Bellingham. And there are three guys on a street corner, one with a bullhorn and the other three holding signs that to me said offensive things. God hates fill in the blank. I sat at Gold Mountain Pizza and I cried. Until a young college man came and stood in front of them with a little white sign that said, these guys don't represent the Jesus that I know. Just in the time that I was there, he got 28 hugs. The guys with the bullhorns got zero. And they will know that we are Christians by our love one for another. 
The book of Revelation doesn't compel you to talk to somebody about Jesus, then this is a glorious waste of your time. Because there is an urgency to the book. And God pleads with his children. Send the world a message. You will meet me in my judgment or my mercy. The God that I know and love wants everyone to meet him in his mercy. Let's be a part of that. Would you pray with me this morning? God, thank you for this morning and for my friends and my family who are here today. God, I pray that we would carry a sign this week that is so crystal clear that people will be able to see transparently through it and see nothing but Jesus. God, I pray that you'd help us to hold to the truth in a time when the world is shifting and moving in so many different directions. God, I pray that we would know, be known by our love one for another. Father, I pray that we would hold these opinion issues in an open hand and matters of truth in a closed hand and give us the wisdom to know what belongs where. Lord, I pray for those who don't know Jesus this morning and I pray that not out of fear but out of love for you that they would give their heart fully and completely to you, that their name would be written, as Revelation says, in the Lamb's book of life and that they would spend the rest of their life following the Lamb of God wherever he goes. So God, I give you great praise for this sometimes difficult and intimidating book. May you continue to give us revelation and application for our modern world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.